Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Hosea, the knowledge of God. So the book of Hosea. Isn't it great to live in a day when we can all own Bibles? I say that because there was a day not that long ago, the majority of the history of the church, majority of the history of the church, everybody listening, was a day in which people didn't own their own Bibles. When was Gutenberg Press invented? The Bibles were locked in the pulpits. So the, problem, the good news is, is that we all have Bibles. The bad news is, is that we all have Bibles. So that means that you're responsible. It's not just what I tell you. You go home and read it. You're personally responsible for what it says. I give you my opinions. And then you've got to go home and read it. And guess what? You get to answer to God for that stuff. And um, you better take it seriously. Uh, it's not, God's not messing around. God withholds his greatest judgments, his harshest, strictest words in the Bible for those who knew what it said and then did not do it. So um, don't take it for granted. We're in the book of Hosea and we're working our way through the Old Testament and now in the book of Hosea we're getting, well, we're more than halfway done through the Old Testament. And um, I want to begin this morning with an all-important question. Chapter 4 of Hosea is where we're going to be in just a bit. Start with an all-important question, a question we ask to the kids, a question I'm going to put to you. Try to be as honest as you possibly can with yourself. Here's a question. Do you know God? Do you know God? I mean, do, do you know him? I'm not asking if you're a religious person. Here you are on a Sunday. You could be on the beach. So yes, you're a religious person. We've got that out of the way. I'm not asking if you're a moral person. I'm thinking you probably are. It's not my question. My question is, is do you no God. It's an important question for a number of reasons, probably the greatest of which is what it says right here, Jesus speaking, John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer to the Father, night before he's crucified, notice what he says. And this is, you talk about in a nutshell here, this is eternal life. Not this could be, or this is a part of, or this might be eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, as he speaks to his Father, right? And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the question of whether you know God is a question that's going to matter forever. Eternal life, right? It's going to, it's going to matter forever. And again, like I notice, I'm not asking if you believe that God exists or you're a moral or religious person. Uh, those things are not the question. That's not the issue. The knowledge of God, listen, is our greatest need it always is. It's not just for certain people and certain groups and certain circumstances, and it's not just the need for the people in the world or the people in the church. No, all, all the way over, every day of our lives, your greatest need is the knowledge of God. And if you don't think that it is, then it is your greatest problem. And it is our greatest problem, culturally speaking, if we do not think or do not understand have a comprehension that our greatest need is, our, is the, the knowledge of God. Jesus writes to seven churches in the book of Revelation. You may have read Revelation. It starts with a seven-page seven cover letter, if you will, seven different churches he writes to, which is very interesting because, first of all, there were way more than seven churches that he writes to, and the one that he writes to, with only one exception, are all just like, who ever heard of that church? Like, for instance, the church at Laodicea, which is the seventh church. He writes to that church. Nobody heard of that church. It's in, a, it's, in a, it's in a major industrial town, a very wealthy town. 
But uh, nobody had ever heard of that church. Why not Jerusalem? Why not, why not Antioch? Why not the church at Rome? Why not these big power-broking churches? Why, why does he write to these seven? What do you find out? These seven actually are characteristics of seven churches that follow a timeline. And when you lay them in the order, if you found them in any other order, it wouldn't be true. But in the order that you find them, Jesus lays out in these seven letters the history of the church up until the present day. So, and if it's true, and I believe that it is, guess which church age we're in? We're in the very last one. Now, the good news is, is it's the last one. The bad news is, is that it's the worst one, by far. Only two churches in the whole scheme of the seven get zeros on their report card, and the last one is one of them. And it, it is, in my, in my opinion, the worst even of the ones that get the zeros. He says this to the church. It was the church, by the way, very interestingly enough, that had it all. They had it all. And he says, you make me sick, effectively. I would spew you out of my mouth. Notice what he says about them. You say, you say that I'm rich. This is their opinion of themselves. They evaluate themselves on a report card. They say, you know what, we've got a lot of money. Um, we've got a lot of wealth. We have need of nothing. And he says, you do not know. See, their problem was knowledge, wasn't it? You do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But that's scary because we live in a culture in which the churches, the, we've, had, we've got the most we've ever had as churches. The most money, the most outreach techniques, the largest buildings, the, the, the uh, conferences, books, teachings, programs, traveling people all over. I'm not saying these things are bad things. We've got all kinds of stuff. That's, that's awesome as long as we remember that we have a greater need. There is a greater problem. There is, there is a greater knowledge out there to be had. And, and if we think because we have all those things, well, then we're set up and we're good. Well, then Jesus is speaking to us, isn't he? I do believe that he is. We're, we're in the church that, that has the most. The life of church of Laodicea, we think we've got it going on because we have all those things when, in fact, the real thing that we have, the true knowledge of God, is waning. How do we know that? We're going to see that, the reason why for that when we consider what, what Hosea has to say in just a minute. A.W. Tozer, though, put it this way. He says, all the problems of heaven and earth, though, though they were to confront us at once, would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem that we have with God. Namely, that he is, what he's like, and what we must do about him. That he is, what he is like, and what we must do about him. That is the biggest issue that faces the churches today. It has ever faced the churches. And then he says this, and I think it's spectacular uh, reasoning. 10,000 lesser problems, he says, would be solved when we come to the right understanding of God. We find ourselves pursuing the answers or the solutions to 10,000 problems in life. But guys, most problems are solved just simply by knowing who God is. Who is God in our circumstances today? Who is God in my family, in my relationships, in my marriage, in my business, in my... Who is he in these things? Solve so many problems. Hosea, as we're considering here today, is a prophet who was called to speak to a people who were fighting 10,000 problems. And yet the real solution was the one thing that they had lost which was the knowledge of God. So we pick it up here in verse 1. Take a look with me. Listen to the word of the Lord, sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against you. God's, he's like calling, he's like a bailiff calling in. Hear ye, hear ye. The honorable God is about to be seated. He's about to call a case against them here. 
The Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness, notice, or knowledge of God in the land. Skip down to verse 6. My people are, what? Destroyed for lack of knowledge. See, they have all these problems and all these pursuits that they're pursuing. In fact, um, there's only one real big problem. They've forgotten the knowledge of God. There are two elements here that we're going to be considering in verses 1 and verse 2 in just a second. And those two elements simply are this. Our knowledge of God, first of all, is directly related to how we act. Our knowledge of God is directly related to how we act. Let me just speak to those of you who struggle with sin. You haven't a struggle. I struggle with sin, just so you know. You're looking for perfection. It was just the church down that way. We don't have that here. We don't run that. We don't believe in that. We can't produce it. We're struggling people. We struggle with sin. We struggle with issues. We don't cover up sin. We don't, we don't make light of sin or anything like that. But we, we're honest about who we are. I, I, struggle, I struggle with sin. You struggle with sin. But let me just say that if you're having a real struggle with sin, that it's, don't try to fix that problem. I can tell you what your problem is. It's the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God, or the lack thereof, I should say, is causing your problems. That's where your issue is. I can't get past this hang-up. I can't get over this. Well, stop working on that and work on your knowledge of him. See, it's it's in relationship with him. Come to love. Jesus says, if if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you're working on keeping the commandments so you can prove you love him. You missed it. What did he say? If you love me, so love him. Commandments are going to come easy if you love him. Commandments are going to be, shall I say it, a piece of cake. When you're that, that right, knowledgeable relationship with him. It's the fact that you've forgotten who he is. It's, it's the fact that he's not important in your life anymore. And you're struggling trying to fix the symptoms. When the, the real problem is, is that the knowledge of God has gone, gone, gone on the wayside in your life. Same was true with this, this uh, group of people called the Israelites. They had forgotten the ways of God. And like I said, there's a direct relationship between your knowledge of God and, and the way you act. And you claim that you know God and yet you live as if God doesn't exist and you talk as if he can't hear you, and you make decisions as if he doesn't know what you're doing, listen, you've got yourself a problem. The knowledge of God needs to change. Notice what he says here, because there is faith, faithlessness, and there's lack of faithfulness in the land, lack of kindness, verse 2. There is swearing, he says, deception, uh, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. He says, listen, your, your actions are betraying you. You claim to know God, but in fact, the way you act demonstrates that you do not. He, he, he doesn't hold the position that you're claiming to have, and, and really the way you act is, is the very thing that tells us how it works. is a direct link between the way I act and the way I think and my knowledge of him. The lack of knowledge of God is a cause of all kinds of bad behavior. By the way, swearing here isn't just cursing in the strict sense. It's actually swearing in the sense of, I swear to do it, but I don't. I, I promise that I'll be there, but I'm not. That's the swearing that he's really talking about here. Sort of the same thing is when we, we, we uh, put someone on the witness stand and we have them put their hand on the Bible, right? Raise their, is it the left? Yeah, right hand, left. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So, I mean, God, yeah, it doesn't seem to matter anymore. Why, why do we do that as a nation? Because we, we, we hope that someone, even though many things push us and pull us, that the fear of God that people have 
will drive them to the place when they sit up there that when we say, tell the truth, that yes, I will. That the fear of God would drive them to that place. It doesn't seem to be working anymore. You know, I, I saw where they had a lady sworn in, I think in Michigan, who put her hand on the Koran. And let me just say this, I don't know what your position is, but here's mine. Might as well. Might as well. Because the God of the Bible isn't known or feared. So might as well. Not a Christian nation. You want to call what we're doing Christian? I do not. I don't think Christ does. Not a Christian nation. I mean, I, I'm sad at the direction our nations are going, but I can tell you what the problem is. And it's not racism, and it's not all this other 10,000 problems, guys. It's the knowledge of God and the fact that we've left it. And, and, such, and, and it's not going to fix until we get back, if ever. If ever. So swearing, they not coming through on their stuff. Verse, verse 3, take a look at that one. Let's talk about any environmentalists here. I'm about to make you really offended. We've got something to offend everyone. That's the great thing about our church. <laughs> therefore, therefore, the land mourns. Everybody goes home mad. That's great. It's the way we want it. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea, Disappear. I wonder how accepting, it says because of the lack of the knowledge of God, these are the consequences, if you will, the land mourns, talking about, you know, like, like the earth, like things are not, plants are not growing and animals are not reproducing. And in fact, species are passing away, it seems to be indicating there. I wonder how accepting environmentalists would be today about the possibility, the reason why the species are disappearing and dying off is because we've abandoned the knowledge of God. Because that's the truth. That's the truth. How, how can we possibly be the caretakers of a planet when we don't know the one who put us in charge of that caretaking? It doesn't make any sense. If you return to the knowledge of God, you return back to environmental, you know, if you want to be a real environmentalist, then, um, then you need to go back to the one who created the environment to begin with. What would change about our culture if we return to the knowledge of God? I think that's one of the big things for sure. What would change about your life? If the knowledge of God, like I said, there is a direct relationship between the way you act, the way you talk, where you go, and what you do, a direct relationship between those things and your knowledge of God. If those things are a problem for you, if they're an issue for you, if there's a, there's a discrepancy, certainly, I shouldn't be doing that, I shouldn't be going, I shouldn't be with, listen, um, there is a one major problem with you, and that's the knowledge of God. Fix it. And you fix those problems. 10,000 problems they can be. There's one major issue. The beginning, listen, of the knowledge of God with our lives begins with how well he knows us. And God knows us very well. We talked about it last time. If you were here with us, we went over some of these things. But probably the treatise on, on the knowledge of God of the human life is what David, Psalmist David writes in Psalm 139. And we're not going to read. I just put excerpts from there. But, uh, oh, Lord, he says, you have searched me and known me. Wow. Like he's searching a library, huh? You have searched me out. You know, when I sit, when I rise. Wow. So God is that concerned? I mean, God just sort of knows, okay, Bill's over there and she's over there and they are over there. God's got a lot to going on to figure out how often I'm sitting and standing. Yep. Yeah. He's that concerned. He's that particularly concerned about you. When I sit and when I rise, you understand my thought from afar as if it was afar because he's not. 
My, my path, he says, the path that I take, my lying down, you're acquainted with all my ways. You know it all. So God knows all the stuff about you. So I came to you and said, hey, listen, hey, hey, listen, they know about you. How would that make you feel? My first question is, well, what part of me are you talking about? I'm not sure if I like that or not. They, they know, well, listen, there is one who, the they, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they know about you. They know your stuff. They know it all. You wove me, he says, in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. He, all the details. And here's the verse that we saw last time. And like I said, we read it from this very um, um, self-esteem-driven Western culture perspective. And we read it wrong when we do that. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's right. Those who come to Christ, they become a brother in sisterhood, right? And they're first of all brothers with Christ and sons of God, right? And how awesome that is. But we read the first part of that very wrongly from this perspective. And I would suggest to you, it may keep you out of the rest of it if that's, if that's your perspective. For those he foreknew, okay, yeah, he knew me. He knew how awesome I was. Of course I'm going to be in heaven. I mean, who wouldn't want me in heaven? I'm great. Heaven would not be near as good without me in it. That's what my mama said about me. I'm awesome, right? I get a ribbon for being last in everything culture we live in. We read it as if, yeah, he, fore, he foreknew, so of course he chose me. I'm awesome. That is not the context, guys. The context is he knew how nasty and ugly and sinful and unlovable and unacceptable that you would be. And by the way, it's always foreknowledge. You know, he, he search, you search me and know me, David says in Psalm 139. When was that search made? Well, if you, if you begin to answer the question when, you do not understand the, the person of God because there is no when with God. To have known it, it means he has always known it. There wasn't a time in which he sat down and says, I've got to learn about so-and-so because I see in the future that he's coming and how nasty and ugly he's going to be. So I've got to get up on the knowledge of him. That is not the way God operates. He's always known your stuff. He's always been familiar with all of your ways. He's always the nitty-gritty the dirty, nasty, he has always known it. And important, as important as knowing him is, consider if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It seems to eclipse all the knowledge which God has, always has had of the ugliness of my life, is eclipsed by the fact that I've dedicated myself to him. Sure enough is. That's great news, it really is. He knows you. God, God, God knows you. Uh, Leonard Sweet writes a book called The Gospel According to Starbucks. Anybody been to our local Starbucks? I have yet to grace that place. I cannot come up with that much money <laughs> for coffee. You got Starbucks fiends here. I don't like it. I'm sorry if that's who you, you love Starbucks. Good, more power to you. Um, but I, I just simply make the best at home, I think. He writes this book, though, anyway, Gospel According to Starbucks, and he writes about a guy by the name of Ed Falbert. Heard of this guy? Ed Falbert is what's called, uh, colloquially, he's called a cupper. What just simply means this is that he is a professional taste tester. In fact, so 
refined or the taste of Ed Falbert, it says that his taste buds are actually certified by the state of New York. He is a coffee taster, professional, makes a ton of money. Because here's what he can do that I definitely cannot do. I could, I could actually do this and tell you it came from Starbucks, but I cannot tell you what he can tell you about the coffee. This is what, he's, this is what Ed Falbert can do. Ed Falbert can take one sip of coffee. He can tell you what country the bean was grown in. He can tell you, he can tell you what state in that, let's say, for instance, Guatemala. He can tell you Guatemala. He can tell you the state within Guatemala. He can tell you the altitude of the bean because there's a certain flavor according to his very refined taste buds that the altitude would, it changes based on altitude. And then not only altitude, he can tell you what mountain it was particularly grown on because every mountain is different. Altitudes can be the same, but mountains are different with regards to actual soil type. And so he can tell you the state, this country, the down to the dirt that the bean was grown in. Isn't that amazing? And I would think, I don't know how that guy's worth a lot of money, but what a job. Let me just say this to you. God knows the dirt that you're from. He knows it. Stop kidding yourself. He knows everything, everything about you. You can't pretend to come to the knowledge of God until you know what he knows about you. And it's everything. He knows it all. He's not guessing. He never learned it. He has always known it, always. There was a guy by the name of Arthur Burns. He was a Jewish, Jewish economist. You remember this guy? He's a great influence in Washington during the tenures of several presidents. Uh, he was once asked to, to pray a prayer at the meeting of evangelical politicians. Now, I always thought that was an oxymoron. Like you got evangelicals, and then you got politicians. Well, apparently, there's maybe three of these guys. I don't know. He was, he was asked to pray at the gathering of evangelical politicians, this, this Jewish uh, person by the name of Arthur Burns. Listen to his prayer. He said just simply these words. He says, Lord, I pray that the Jews would know Jesus Christ. That's the way he started. Wow. What a statement from a Jew, right? I pray that the Jews would know Jesus Christ. And he says, I pray that the Buddhists would know Jesus Christ. And he says, I pray that the Muslims would know Jesus Christ. And me too. And then he said, in conclusion, and I pray that the Christians would know Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think that's kind of God's prayer. All those people calling themselves by Christ's name and yet living something completely different. Like I said, your, your actions betray and really your knowledge. It's not the same. They're inconsistent. They're not congruent. You see, God knows us, but the question is, is do, is, do we know him? Do we actually know him? Or do we know the importance of what it means to know him? Jeremiah chapter 9, again, all the way through the scriptures, it's always, we, we bring these religious arguments in, and so I'm a Baptist, and you're Catholic, and we're Methodist, and we're this and that. You don't find any of that in the Bible. All the New Testament's all about who knowing God. Okay, tell me, you're a Baptist. Awesome. Do you know God? Well, then it's going to be hell. Really? Yeah. God is all about knowing him. It's not about religion. It's, about, it's a relational statement, not a religious statement. Quit making it religious. Let not a wise man, here's the condition of our age, isn't it? The Laodicean church. We're all about our wisdom. We're all about our money. We're all about our stuff. 
Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Nothing wrong with having that stuff. But if you think having that stuff means you've got it, then you missed it. Let him not boast of that stuff. Let him boast. Let him who boasts boast about this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That he understands and knows me of all the things that you could possibly do with your life. Of all the problems to fix. Of all the questions to answer. That's the question and the answer. Do you know him? Do you know him? I read the story of a couple who had their first child, and they named him Jared, a little boy, and he was growing up four or five years old, and, you know, began to kind of branch out from mom and dad. I mean, four and five years old, that's what they do. And so they were real concerned that he knew who he was his phone number, his address, that kind of stuff. And they wanted him, he was learning to write. They wanted him to be able to write it all. And so they spent a couple, couple weeks, a couple months with him, teaching him to write his name correctly, teaching him to write his phone number, his parents' phone number, his address, familiarizing him with, with the lay of the land, kind of the neighborhood, to kind of know where his house was and that kind of thing, just, just so that he could be... You know, in case something happened, in case he got lost or whatever, then, then he would be able to find his way back or be able to tell someone how to, how to find his way back. And so they decided to kind of put their little experiment, their little um, endeavor to the test. And so the dad took Jared on a walk. And they walked out of their neighborhood. And they had conversation. And the dad was sort of trying to distract Jared, just kind of keep his mind off of possible, possibly where he was. And, Talking, walking, small talk stuff, carrying him occasionally. And they walk for a while, talk for a while. And they finally stops. He says, Jared, do you know where you are? He said, no. He said, Jared, how far from home are you? I don't know, he said. He said, well, let me tell you something, son. I do believe you're lost. Little boy thought about it for a second. Kind of got really concerned. Lost. They've been talking about that. You know, don't get lost. If you do get lost, this is what you do and all this stuff. Oh, he sort of got a little upset, you know. Started thinking for a minute. Then he said all of a sudden this very pleasant look passed over the child's face. Real concerned first. And then the next thing he knows, the child's just smiling. He says, he says I'm not lost, Dad. And he says, what makes you think that, son? He says, because I'm with you. He says, you know what? He was right. <laughs> He's exactly right. You see, it's, it's being in a relationship with a father that settles so many other questions, solves so many other problems, you see. The problems may still be there, but do they really remain the same problems when I know who I'm with? No, they do not. They do not. Jesus makes a statement with regards to religious people, what's going to happen to only the religious who have no relationship? Many will say, that's a sad word, isn't it? On that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's pretty religious. Or in your name cast out demons? That's super religious. And in your name perform many miracles? That's maximum religious. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Like religious, but lawless. Because there's no relationship. It's about relationship, guys. It's about knowledge. It's about knowing him. Do you actually know him? I'm not going to know about him, tell all the stories that there is. Listen, hell's going to be a place of complete knowledge of God. They're going to know him. They're going to know him as good as anybody. They're going to know that his word was right and that he keeps his word. He says what he means and he means what he says. It's not going to be a lack of knowledge in hell. It's a knowledge of not who he is, but knowing him personally. Do you know God personally? I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to give you an opportunity. If you could say, I'm not really certain about that, Pastor Bill. Well, I want you to be certain of that. Because I can assure you God does. God wants you to know him personally. Eternal life, listen, is a person. It is a relationship with a person. It's not a religious thing that you do. It's not certain steps that you keep. It's a person. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. They may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus says, to as many as received me, to them, to them are given the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in my name. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. See, it's an acceptance of a person. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son, it says. He who has the son has the life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Do you have a relationship with the person of God's Son. The same question I asked to our kids earlier today, not, not whether they know who Jesus is, that he is the Savior, but how does that make them better than the devil? The devil knows that stuff. No, not knowing that he is the Savior, that's not enough. But to know him as your personal Savior, that's where you cross the line from knowing about to knowing personally. Do you know him personally? Maybe you would like to pray a prayer like this and say, Jesus, I want to know you personally. I want to accept you as not just the, the Savior, but as my Savior. I want you to be that salvation for me, that, that relationship with, with God that you promised, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus, I thank you that we can know you personally and that through that relationship is communicated to us all the life that you have for us, the forgiveness, the hope. 10,000 questions fall by the wayside when that one problem is solved. Thank you so much, Jesus, for giving your life for us so that we might have life in you. We praise you for it. It's in Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.